right. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Beth Trammell, and I'm a licensed psychologist and an associate professor of psychology at Indiana University East. And I have to tell you, I, I know I say this every time. So if you're a listener and you're like, Beth's always excited. She always says the same thing. And it's not it's not a script, y'all. Like I literally do feel so excited when I get to talk uh, with so many amazing people because I feel the power of what they're going to share and how impactful it is going to be. So, you know, my guest, Paula Klein, my dear friend has decided to come back, not just this time, but I'm excited because we already have another session on the books, another episode in the wings for y'all. And because there's so many things to unpack here. And Paula is so good at sharing this. And so, Paula, thank you for being here. I am so excited about today's topic because emotion regulation not only is so important, but I just know this is your jam and you're so good at making it so real. And emotion is something that I think for so many people is like, oh, no, I think I'm going to skip this episode. And I'm here to tell folks, don't, don't skip. So Paula, welcome back. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be back. Um, I just left our last podcast so excited and filled up because I got to talk about uh, meaning. And and as I hope I expressed, that is one of my passions as a therapist and as a person is that the people I come in contact with have a solider sense of how to make sense of life and how to find joy and community and, and spend the hours of their days well. Um, But I also realized as we were talking and in the conversations that I've had since then, that this part of my work is it requires some level of the ability to sit with real intense emotions first. Mm. Yeah. And so I thought it was a good idea to come back and really acknowledge that, that, you know, you can't walk into some of the most emotionally tumultuous conversations of your life with an empty bag for how do I tolerate painful emotions or how do I even understand what emotions are going on in my body. And so I wanted to come back and say, hey, we don't forget about that here. In fact, um, our practice is really built on what we would say is kind of a whole life process. We want to be able to find somebody who is just completely depleted and empty and skillless and at the bottom of a a moment of their life and have services and resources that equip them at each of those stages. You know, the first really being, can I accept and understand and work through painful emotions Mm. through at to more like, can I build, you know, satisfying, significant relationships, and then on to, you know, can I really identify and execute my life within a meaning making structure. So like, we kind of do the whole thing. And uh, yeah, so I wanted to get come back and kind of start at A instead of Z. Well, I love this because I, you know, I love that you kind of stepped back even. And as we were chatting before we started recording, you were talking about kind of these three phases perhaps, and not that we're not kind of going back and forth between the phases. They're not like steps. Like once you graduate from the first step, you're, you're you're done. But I actually really appreciate this structure that you've kind of shared that phase one or, or, or maybe the primary thing where you're initially talking with folks is 
about developing skills, right? And one of those skills we're going to talk about today, emotion regulation. And we've got a whole list of all the other skills that we're going to talk about too in other episodes. But today is about emotion regulation that sort of lays this foundation so that you can do the wholehearted living and then the meaning-making structure. And so I love that you um, are coming back, not because that topic was even too big, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning-making is important. And I think I know because I heard from a lot of folks that they got a lot out of that um, out of that episode on meaning making. But I love we're going we're going to kind of go to the foundation here mm-hmm. and talk about some of the foundational skills. So talk to us about what emotion regulation really means. I feel like you know people are starting to realize the importance of of emotion. Right. I don't know that we're getting a whole lot better at it, but I think we're like starting to realize like, well, there is something about learning about social emotional kind of understanding. But when we talk about emotion regulation, how do you define it or help people understand it? So I guess the very first thing I would say when I'm talking to somebody about emotion is that Emotions are a fundamental part of a human lived experience. Uh, Probably one of my favorite writers, speakers in the field, Brene Brown says that we are feeling beings that think, not thinking beings that feel. And I think that really captures it. You know, even if you look at our neurobiological development, you're going to find that the parts of our brain that emote are Uh, closer to the brainstem, which means they're just closer to life functioning than, you know, generating rules or figuring out uh, complex math equations or reasoning our way through things, which is in the frontal lobe of our brain. This part, I mean, I have to stop here because it's so interesting when we break down sort of the way our brain works, it's like emotion is actually more primal. Mm Mm-hmm. And on a logical level, I think we know that. Mm-hmm. So why and why on earth is it so much more terrifying? You know I, what I'm saying? Like we spend so much more time in reason and logic and we want to avoid emotion. So I, I feel like that's such a, a paradox. Well, I think it's because we have kind of exclusively defined emotional or being emotional as those states in which we are the most extremely emotional. Mm. So. We are, you're always emoting. I mean, when you go to your car in the morning and you settle in and you put your seatbelt on and you kind of feel comfortable in the seat for the first time, or you notice that your chair isn't adjusted in exactly the right way, most of those minor adjustments that you're making, those are all driven by emotion. You know, which seat you choose when you go to the classroom, what looks good to you on the menu at a restaurant, all of those things are emotional experiences. It's just that that's not typically how people talk about being emotional. We talk about being emotional with like when we're on the floor weeping or when we're, you know, so angry, we're throwing something across the room. And so I think if you only define emotion in its most extreme expression, it can look a little scary, right? Emotions are powerful when they are at full expression. Um, I think the other thing is when at full expressions, emotions can feel like they overtake you. Mm. You don't feel a lot of volition over rage. 
And that can be really disconcerting for people. So if I have an experience of being like incredibly angry and I find myself 25 minutes later, looking back at that moment, completely regretting the things that came out of my mouth or the, the computer that I broke or the relationship that I ended, I can go, wow, you know, emotions are really untrustworthy and they really, you know, took me over. Like I was at their mercy for a minute. And I think it's interesting because that fear has resulted in us actually having less exposure to emotional well-being and actually less capacity to actually recognize and respond to emotions effectively, which prevent and develop a sense of autonomy and volition over our emotional lives. I already got chills. We've only been talking for like four and a half minutes and I'm already like, yes, I mean, the two things that you just said that I think, I mean, mind blowing, right? That like, we are always emoting, right? Like the examples you gave are so important for people to remember. Like, yes, we, that's why we have these preferences or these things that we do or don't do. Like that's driven by emotion or feeling. People need to hear that to desensitize this idea that emotions are only that big, big blow up or that lay on the ground. I can't get up because I'm sobbing. I think you're so on track to why we are so terrified of not just talking about it, but experiencing it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, and it, it can be terrifying. I mean, emotions are a big deal, especially when we're uncomfortable and unfamiliar with them. I, I mean, I don't like when I feel at the mercy. For me, it's mostly of my anxiety. You know, yeah. like when I feel like my anxiety is showing up really big and it's making something that I would otherwise think of as simple, really challenging. Like, oh, so my my anxiety is here and uh, it just showed up. My parents just had their 50th wedding anniversary and you all here in this audience are exposed. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable public speaking, but I got up to give a toast at my parents' 50th wedding anniversary and my anxiety and probably a whole lot of love were really, really palpable and present. And I was stumbling over my words and I didn't execute the toast the way that I wanted to, you know. And that's when we have that kind of really powerful emotional experience, it can, it has an impact on us and we don't necessarily like that so well. Uh, But I also think that, no, I also love that. I love my parents, right? Like I'm, I will, I'll take the sacrifice to my eloquent execution of a toast to feel the degree of, you know, gratitude for their marriage that I got to experience in that moment. It's incredible. Okay. So It's one of the things that, I mean, sort of drives me crazy um, when folks talk about, you know, whether it's a child or an adult or whatever, that this person needs to just control themselves. They need to control their emotions. Somebody needs to teach this child how to control their emotions. It bothers me with every cell in my being. And then I have to like realize that I... (laughs) You know, I can't always change every person's mind, but Paula, dear, dear Dr. Klein, (laughs) help us debunk that myth that emotions are something to control. 
Well, sadly, I really feel like I would love it if my emotions would just get in line and I could give them a bunch of rules to follow. Um, I am a deeply emotional person. And if at like eight, someone had walked up to me and said, here are the 10 things you can do. And these things will never be a trouble for you again. I would have absolutely signed up. Um, I might even now because I, but I'm I'm half joking because I've learned to really love my emotional life. Uh, You are emotional and so are your kids. So what I would say is that's, that's a little bit like saying, you know, uh, I really wish you could control your breathing all of the time. Yeah. You know, I do think having some degree of volition over breath work is actually really good for you. Yeah. You know, having some sense of your ability to regulate your breath, um, particularly in moments of distress or uh, even when you're just feeling really disempowered and you can realize like, well, at least I can control this. I can have some agency over this Yeah, is good. And I think a relationship to our emotional selves with a similar kind of approach is helpful. Like you are going to emote and expecting you to be in control of your emotions 100% of the time is pretty much the same as saying, I want you to be in control and volitionally on top of your breath all the time. Um, That's a goal. Um, Most people are not going to be able to attain that. You know, I've got dishes to do. I've got, you know, uh, conversations to have. I have things to accomplish. So, it's, it's just such an unattainable goal to say you need to be in control of your emotions all of the time. And I think that the other thing I would say is when, when a person comes in and we're like, so here are some skills that can help you. You can unintentionally get the message that you could do that all the time. Yeah. And you really can't. Yeah. You really can't. Okay. So to the person out there who's listening that says, all right, I thought this was about learning new skills, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're not going to teach me how to control my emotion, what about emotion is going to be helpful for me ever? Like, what's the skill to learn if if the skill isn't to learn to control it? I would say that it's a kind of a respectful friendship. And I can understand, you know, person who's angry, like some people's emotions have showed up and been dictators in their life. Mm. Um, if you are the kind of person that has had anxiety or sadness or hopelessness or anger show up for you on a regular basis and boss you into situations that you were really uncomfortable with. And now your attitude is, I don't want to deal with them. Or or you've witnessed someone who's been at the mercy of their emotions. I think that happens a lot too. You know, you have a parent who's at the mercy of some hopelessness and can never get out of bed. And you're like, look, I'm not going to live their life. I don't want that for myself. Uh, I get it. And So a friendship is not a dictatorship on either side. Mm. You know, a friendship is not your logic butting in and telling your emotions exactly what to think and how to be. And it is also not allowing your emotions to run roughshod over your life and make all of your major life decisions. And so emotion regulation seeks to teach you how to have a healthy friendship with your emotions. Mm. Okay, say it again. Emotion regulation teaches you how to have a healthy friendship with your emotions. Okay. So I'm a person who doesn't even wrap my head around what friendship means. So 
how maybe I don't ha- maybe I'm bad at friendships. I'm, I'm like picturing some clients I've had in the past. They're like, I don't need any friends. So this idea of friendship, I love. Mm-hmm. And can you break it down for folks who who may have like a real jacked up version of what even friendship looks like on like a social level? Sure. So for me, the term friendship really brings with it the notion of peers. Okay. So as opposed to friendship doesn't carry the weight of one person is the boss and the other person is the employee. Uh, One person is the parent, the other is the child. Those uh, roles tend to communicate some sort of authority to one and submission to the other. Right. Like a hierarchy. Yes. Yeah. So friendship is peers. They're both important and they both get to influence uh, the outcome of your decisions. So when we're teaching emotion regulation, actually the very second class that we teach talks about how we have three states of mind. And one of the states of mind is your reasonable mind. And that's characterized by logic. It's characterized by a lack of emotion. It's characterized by um, kind of the cool experience of like maybe doing a math problem or collecting items in your grocery cart at the grocery store, or it's very matter of fact, very orderly. Analytical. Analytical. Reasoning, Mm -hmm. logic. Yep. The other side is your emotion mind. Uh, This state of mind is characterized by um, large waves of feeling. Your thoughts are consistent with that emotion. So if you're feeling grateful, you might feel a rush of memories related to all of the things that you're grateful for about the person or experience. If you're sad, you're going to remember other situations that made you similarly sad your thoughts and memories and actions are consistent with the emotional state. And what I would call this friendship is this third state of mind, which is called wise mind. And it's your ability to draw in and from both states of awareness. So you can remember and identify what emotion you're experiencing. You can also access that logical part of your brain that can problem solve. And together they kind of coalesce in, Hey, this is how I can move forward in my life in a way that's effective. So this wise mind, this reasonable mind and emotional mind, they all live in us. Right. I mean, that's what we're, that's what we're suggesting. They all live in us and we have varying levels of awareness based on different experiences we're having, or maybe even um, like what are some of the specifics around this experience, right? Is it triggering a certain kind of emotion Mm -hmm. that pushes you into the emotion mind? And, and so I think what I want people to also remember, and I'm repeating this, not because you didn't say it, but I'm repeating it, <laughs> that they all live and are all important, mm-hmm. right? All, all pieces here are an important part of us living in harmony with our constant emotions. There are many people that have tried to eliminate I would say most recent years, their emotion mind, they really kind of want to set up booby traps against it and like lean really heavily into their reasonable mind. 
I think culturally, we really value and put forward experts who appear to be speaking from their reasonable mind. We tend to be less inclined to listen to somebody who is speaking out of a place of passion as their dominant way of speaking. Uh, We tend to see that as like immature. And uh, what I would say about it is when we pursue that path, we end up experiencing life as quite um, dull and Mm. living a completely logical existence really divorces us from the most satisfying and pleasurable experiences of life. Yeah. That's so good. That, that, that's so good. Right. I mean, I, I think people need to hear again that the emotional side of things, that part of our lives, that part of our relationships, while we might remember those as being the hardest moments, they are also the most pleasurable, like you're saying, right? Like I I think about you standing there doing the toast and remembering the anxiety or the worry or the stumbling and, but underneath it is the love for 50 years Mm -hmm. that you're, you know, you're remembering, you're honoring. It's the love for your parents. I mean, I love that. Yeah. It, it's hard. What I would say is emotions cost, but they pay. Oh, that's right. Like they, they cost. Yeah, it's true. That's so good. Um, So my very, very, very best friend has just had her second child whom I adore completely, but she is a fresh remembering how vulnerable it is to love something so much that is Mm. so fragile and can't talk to you. So they're in the process of discovering, you know, does he have any food sensitivities? And, you know, I think the way that we love something opens us up to, you know, the feeling of loss if something happens or the feeling of fear that something might happen, you yeah. know? Yeah. yeah. But it is also that same degree of attachment and emotional connection. That means that when he giggles, your entire body lights up with joy and enthusiasm. Yeah. And so I really believe that we pay to love in the way that we do and we pay to feel in the way that we do but ultimately our feeling lives are what make existing and having relationships rewarding that's so good okay so we've got these three minds we Mm -hmm. know that emotion is something we experience over and over it can be big and it can feel scary because it does when it's at its, you know, kind of loudest expression, maybe emotion can feel out of control. Mm -hmm. And so how do we help people now that they have this awareness, right? Because I think that's what you're developing. That's what at least I'm hearing is we're helping people at the beginning have awareness of just emotion on a different level, right? We're breaking the conceptions or the the myths, the misconceptions that people have about emotion. We're trying to break those and develop new awareness. And so as I'm developing this new awareness, I'm a person who's like, okay, I'm I'm starting to get bought into this idea, right? That I'm I'm always emoting, that my emotion can be big, it's going to cost, but it does pay. So let's say I'm a person who's bought into this. Mm -hmm. 
What's the skill part? Like, what do I do? How do I do? I would say that there are two kind of fundamental skills that we start out with. Uh, The first is mindfulness, which we addressed. This is the idea of becoming self-aware. So for you to even be able to engage in a conversation about was I in my rational mind or was I in my emotion mind or was I in my wise mind requires you to just be self-aware. And I don't want to scare you all off from the word mindfulness. I know it's got a lot of like, man, it's real buzzy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, And what I would say about it is I practice mindfulness most often when I'm doing the dishes. Uh, So this is not foreign. It isn't something that you need to go find a hillside and like let a, you know, a soft beam of sunlight caress your face in order to happen. My life does not really allow for too many moments like that. But what I do do almost every day is dishes. And so what I do when I practice uh, paying attention to the dishes is I really draw my attention to the five senses as I experience it. And what that is, is it's just rather than living in the future, you know, washing the dishes while I simultaneously think about the 15 other things I need to get done this afternoon or living in the past, washing the dishes and ruminating about the mistakes that I've made or the way that things have gone. Instead, I really ground myself in the present moment. So for me, that means buying dish soap that I think smells good and washing my dishes in a, in a temperature of water that I can, you know, experience and tolerate. And I just really pay attention. I listen to the sound of the water. I smell, I do Miss Meyers honeysuckle dish soap. I just, I can't get enough of that. And so I'll take a moment to really smell it. And I'll, I'll look at the dish like gleaming with the water on it. And I'm just very present with it. Turns out when you ground yourself in that kind of experience pretty regularly, you can tell whether or not you were in your emotion mind or your reasonable mind or your wise mind in that moment. Mm. You'll know, oh. I was really present with some anxiety. It was really hard for me to keep focused on those dishes because in the back of my head was this gnawing concern about this unpaid bill or the fact that this person hadn't responded to my text message yet. Or no, I was having a fight in my mind, uh, this future conflict with my spouse or with my child or with my boss. And the entire time I'm rubbing, I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, honeysuckle, honeysuckle, back, back, back. (laughs) Like that helps you recognize like, oh, my emotions were really, really present with me there. Or I can't even be present. I'm too busy logicking things out that I'm avoiding connection with my body. And that's, you know, I've really spent a lot of time in my intellectual mind. Okay. I love this example of the dishes and I actually really relate to this. Um, So if I'm not a dishwashing person Mm -hmm. and my idea is, oh yeah, I've got to have it like on the beach or on top of the hill with the sun caressing my face. Like, are there other like practical ways that you have kind of prescribed mindfulness? How often should that happen? Right? Like, I think it's tricky because at the heart of this, it's not really about prescribing a black and white way of doing mindfulness. That actually is kind of the opposite of what we're trying to do. But I think there are a lot of folks that see mindfulness as a, um, it's either a very like big, overwhelming, scary, or maybe they've tried it, Paula, right? I mean, I've had plenty of folks that are like, I'm not doing that mindfulness baloney. I'm not doing it. (laughs) 
because when I've done it, I can't settle my mind. I mean, what are your ways of helping people not be afraid of mindfulness? And and what are the like practical ways that that you've had success with with clients or people you know? Yeah, I, I'm going to address the last group of people you talked about first, and then kind of walk through the rest of the question. Yeah. You were talking about how some people have tried mindfulness and they can't settle their minds. And I really do think that most often when you run into mindfulness, you're running into people who are talking about meditation. You're running into people who are talking about, you know, sitting still, uh, clearing your mind. uh, And, and that can be seen as part of a spiritual discipline or just as a part of an emotional health discipline. And I'm for that. I mean, I do yoga, so I like to sit down and, and, you know, practice breathing. That's my jam. But I have worked with a number of people for whom that is not something that works for them. And the reason is because they kind of have a lot of restless physical energy and they need to be doing something. And so usually what shows up when they try to sit down is all of this physical agita that is distracting. And so I'd say, yeah, get you on a bike. Uh, I had a gentleman that I worked with that played basketball for his mindfulness activity. He would go out and he would come in and talk about how the basketball smelled like rubber and he could just clear his mind from the day and really focus on, you know, making basketball shots. Uh, My business partner runs her mindfulness practices, a run. Do not feel like you have to be physically still Mm -hmm. in order to be mindful. Um, that is a huge uh, obstacle for a lot of people. And if you are one of those people that gets met with a lot of physical restlessness, yeah, get out and run, go for a walk. For those who are more like me, uh, I tend to be kind of overscheduled. So that's why it's dishes, right? Like if if you said you need to like sit down in a dark room or whatever, I'm overscheduled. So I pick one of the activities I know I'm going to do, shower, brush my teeth, drink a cup of coffee, have lunch. Uh, Eating is one that is very helpful for people uh, to get in touch with their food and the experience of eating. I like it because it's really got a lot of sensory inputs to it. So, you know, if you're eating something, you're smelling it, you're tasting it, you're touching it, you're chewing it. It's like you've got a lot of sensory inputs you can play with. So what I'm hearing you say, mm-hmm. and I want to clarify, because I think you're right. I think people use mindfulness and meditation inter- interchangeably mm-hmm. and they're not the same. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also important for people to realize that mindfulness is not about stillness. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness is about staying grounded in self-awareness through our senses. Would you yes, say that's true? I would. And that you like rocked at defining that. Very good. Well, that's because that's what you've been saying. I'm just hearing what you're saying and then just spitting it back out. Well, I liked your summary. It was awesome. Perfect. Mm-hmm. That's so good. Okay. So mindfulness is the first of two uh-huh. skills and we've given people lots of ways to practice. Do you have any apps that you like? Are there any good apps or d- digital tools that you give to people? I do tend to use a breathing app called Oak, but it isn't a mindfulness app. It's just a deep breathing app and it'll actually funnel a little more into this second set of skills that I think are the two foundational 
points for emotional regulation, yep. which the next one is distress tolerance. Oh boy. That sounds fancy. Um, basically it is the skills that allow us to endure painful emotions without making things worse. I mean, does that exist in the world? I'm wondering. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, we typically, one of the things that most people already have in their skill, in their skill set are distress tolerance skills. Now okay. I'm not saying don't overuse them. For example, having a scoop of ice cream after a bad day is a distress tolerance skill. And what I will tell people is if that's where you're at, if you're having a scoop of ice cream, you know, every other day because you have a stressful job. Okay. If you're having a half gallon of ice cream every night, there's a bigger pain we need to deal with. Yeah. So distress tolerance is skills that we can use to endure painful or difficult seasons uh, without making situations work. And deep breathing, for example, is one of them. If you are feeling a very intense emotion, for example, you can breathe for two minutes. And at the end of those two minutes, it is unlikely you will have done anything to make your life worse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, just in your description, you know, I just think about the number of people who actively avoid pain, mm-hmm. right? And in, in whatever way that is. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying to me is their active avoidance of pain is their skill. It's just mm-hmm. not necessarily making life better. Yeah, they're using it too much. Most, most often they're using it too much. So I will say things often in the classes that I teach is you can't find me a substance that I don't think there's a place for. It's just probably not on your Saturday night fun time. Yeah. So if you say to me like, well, you know, uh, narcotics are bad. I would say something like, well, narcotics have a great place. Like right after my spinal surgery, I would really like those narcotics. However, if those narcotics are showing up for you Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Monday, and you do not have a chronic pain condition, it's helping you to avoid some sort of emotional pain, then I would say you're overusing that uh, distress tolerance skill. It is a distress tolerance skill. It's just that you are using it to your own detriment. And so it's not getting better. Yes, we want to help people develop a skill set for enduring painful emotions that don't ultimately lead to outcomes that they don't want. Okay. So one of them is deep breathing. Mm -hmm. What are other, you know, sort of helpful things? And, and I think, you know, if I think about some of the work that I've done, you know, as, as I'm helping folks develop awareness of, of what this painful experience is, how I'm trying to avoid it, you know, meaning making, tends Mm -hmm. to be, or at least, you know, it's like people want to understand it so they can make it stop. Mm -hmm. Right. So I want to make meaning of it. I want to make it stop. Otherwise I want to avoid it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I I'm beginning to kind of see this whole like full circle thing here, you know? So Mm -hmm. how do we get people to stop and not just avoid the pain Mm -hmm. and try to jump straight to meaning making? Sure. And experience the part of distress tolerance that makes life better? I would say that, you know, I think recognizing that you can endure pain 
is something that a lot of people, you know, I think about how we raise our kids, like mm-hmm. they experience some pain and we kind of rush in to immediately resolve it. Yeah. There's a, there's an, a, there's a message there that we're unintentionally sending, which is yeah. you can't take it. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you as a mom, it's really me that can't take it. Yeah. Like yeah. it's me. That's like, I don't want you to be in pain. This is a lot of pain for me to be in while you're in pain. How about I get you out of pain so that I can stop being in pain? Yeah. I think we have to get our minds around conceptually that pain isn't the enemy. Yeah. Pain is information. Pain is often valuable information. And we do need, if it's a big pain, we do need breaks. So like, let's say the pain is the disappointment that you wandered into, you know, the restaurant of your choice and they no longer have your favorite item on the menu. Like, I'm pretty sure that you can probably tolerate that experience. You can feel that pain all the way through. You can find yourself something else on the menu to order and, you know, and enjoy your dinner. Now, you may not be able to fully enjoy your dinner. There have definitely been times in my life, for example, when that disappointment, that it was too much to expect that I was going to enjoy the dinner, not storm out of the restaurant, order something else to eat. I was available to do, but I was pretty disappointed that, you know, that handmade uh, gnocchi isn't on the menu anymore. You know, I was pretty disappointed. So, and I can experience that and feel it all the way through in the, in the moment. But if you're talking about something like, I am fired from my dream job and I feel a great degree of distress about what that means immediately. Like, how am I going to find a new job? How am I going to pay my bills? Um, But I'm also having some pain about like, what does this mean about my dreams? What does this mean about my skills? Who am I? I'm ashamed to tell the people in my life. Uh, you're probably not going to process all of that pain in one 45 to 55 minute session with your therapist. You're probably not going to be done with that in the course of the next, you know, maybe six months, depending on how quickly you're able to resolve that. What I do think distress tolerance provides are skills that help you to take a break. So you can uh, have a deep breath in, in there. I like to do positive activity scheduling. So in a particularly difficult season of life, like let's say you're enduring a grief. This has just recently happened on my caseload. I have somebody who just lost somebody and it's just kind of excruciating to get out of bed and move forward. Um, I'll be like, well, you love coffee. I love coffee. Are you going to have coffee this morning? I am. Do, do you have your favorite coffee in the house? I sure do. Do you have your favorite creamer? Well, creamer has so many calories. This is not the time of your life to be concerned about how many calories are in your creamer. You go to the creamer aisle and you buy your favorite creamer. Well, uh, I don't deserve to have that creamer. Nope, that's not how we handle this. We schedule positive activities. We want at least one a day really at the most painful parts of the day. The reason I pick coffee often with grief is because getting out of bed in the morning is such a, is such a difficult moment. It's like, you need something to look forward to. Like it may feel excruciating to admit that this person is gone, but at least there's going to be coffee. Yeah. And I'll have them say it like, just say it. At least there's going to be coffee. That's right. Say it out loud if you have to. That's right. And there's going to be creamer. Yeah. There's going to be good creamer for me. It's going to be amaretto creamer. (laughs) 
but I don't know if it's going to be for you, you know, and I think it's that. So pleasant activity scheduling is another form of distress tolerance. And what I'll tell people in that is you are far less likely to do something that you don't want to do. Uh, if you schedule things that are okay for you to do. So if you're trying to not get drunk, for example, in your grief, you're like, my my go-to distress tolerance skill has been to drink until I can't think anymore. Well, if you try to do no positive activities in the course of a day, eventually that distress tolerance skill is going to show up and say, hey, you need a break. And you do. And And you do have practiced anything else. It will be there for you. So if I'm a person who is like, my mind is kind of being blown by this whole idea of distress tolerance, right? That we're all engaging in all sorts of skills around distress tolerance, some of which may be making our lives better and some of which may not be making our lives better. Mm-hmm. Is there uh, is there value in me kind of spending a little time with myself or with my therapist looking for the pattern. What's the pattern in my distress tolerance skill, right? Like I I think about the example of uh, the restaurant, right? Mm -hmm. Where a person's distress tolerance skill may be to voice his or her opinion Mm -hmm. to the manager um, (laughs) or on social media or Mm -hmm. to everybody they see about that restaurant. Like, is there a pattern that emerges or is it helpful to know that pattern that emerges in how we tolerate distress? I would say doing a real distress tolerance inventory will tell you a lot about yourself. (laughs) I'm afraid. (laughs) Yeah, Um, it will. It will tell you a lot about yourself. And if you can manage to sit with yourself without berating yourself, you know, just from a genuine space of curiosity and, and, interest. Like, how am I coping with this world? I think if you can start with, Hey, life is really hard. Yeah. It's really hard for all of us. And I want to take a look at how I'm managing the day-to-day pains of my life. Yeah. Because I'm going to be honest with myself and say, I am coping some way. Yeah. Yeah. Some of those ways are interior, you know, like, you may cope by constantly criticizing other people in your head. Like, oh, one of the ways I cope is every time I feel disappointed in myself, I I practice a litany of criticisms I have for everyone else. Sure. Well, at least I'm not this, or at least I'm not that. At least I'm not this. Yes. Yeah. Um, you can cope by giving yourself the idea Uh, Another internal one is uh, some kind of goal that's really unrealistic for you to achieve. Uh, I will see people shooting to have a physique that is only attainable with, you know, two to three hours in the gym and a personal chef, but they are trying to cope by when I get to that set of appearances, when I look that way, I will be satisfied with myself and with my life. And Uh, That's a way of coping with the pain and uncertainty of reality that, you know, I mean, there are worse. I'm always like, we can always find a worse way, you know, (laughs) it's not like, that's why I have very little judgment. Life is super hard and painful. It's just, are these things ultimately building into a life that I can be delighted about? 
Or are these things leaving me empty handed? Or are these things actively destroying the things that I want? I mean, this is, it's just incredible. I mean, the way that you help break these things down for folks in just such a meaningful way, Paula, is just incredible. And I am... I'm just so thankful. I'm just so thankful that I, I get to do this with you and that you you say yes to coming and, and sharing. Um, as we wrap up this episode, is there anything else that you want to share knowing we're going to have this talk again? <laughs> um, I'm super grateful to have been here. I I think this time I we do actually offer classes aimed at this. So if you find yourself in a season pretty much anywhere in the country, you can join us for classes because they're not considered therapy. And so you can show up and get a lot more exposure to emotion regulation skills development. And we'd love to teach you. It's me and my business partner. We meet for an hour and a half every week, and we'd love to help you figure that out. And I cannot endorse this more highly. I mean, Paula and I um, have been great friends and colleagues for, well, I mean, over a decade. Um, And I have referred people to your classes, have heard from people in your classes. The changes that can come from this, y'all, like are literally life-changing. I mean, I don't say this to sound like I'm blowing this out of the water, but this literally, even just this last you know, 40 minutes of us chatting, I hope that you leave here changed and knowing that's what the class is, right? It's teaching you more of these things and then giving you the space to apply them in your life with people around you to support you and encourage you. I mean, that's what your class does. Yeah. These are entirely driven, developed and driven to empower people to have great lives. Um, we charge for them, but we charge just what we would make doing anything else. Um, our goal in in providing these services is really uh, the life transformations that come from the opportunity to exclusively focus on building your skill set around these issues. And we really believe that they're life changing. They are life changing. I have no doubt. And the financial investment in comparison to the payout is... Oh. I mean, it's out of this world. So I will have a link to Mm -hmm. your class in the show notes and in the description of the episode here so people can know how to find you. And I'm just, I'm just so grateful. Thank you for being here. Thank Thank you you for having me again. You know, I think you're the best and I look forward to being on again soon. I know. And if anybody has questions or thoughts, we would welcome them. And uh, thank you for listening. And until next time, I can't wait to see you again. 